This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. On October 4th, 1873, the Toronto Argonauts Football Club was formed. Then, a part of what was called the Argonauts Rowing Club. The team now is a member of the Canadian Football League, making the Argos one of the oldest existing clubs in professional sports in North America. In this same year, this week's story begins as a school was formed. Now this school has connections to the NFL, and ground zero for the story is in Chicago. Welcome to the Football History Dude Podcast, where each episode is a journey back in time to learn about the rich history of the NFL. Your host is Arnie Chapman. Football is his passion, and he wants you Come along with him to explore the yesteryear of the gridiron. So hop on board his DeLorean, and let's get this baby up to 88 miles per hour. This time, as we step up the DeLorean, the date is July 21st, 1873, near Adair, Iowa. We're here to witness an infamous event made famous by the movies over and over around the world. Well, maybe not that many. But what we're here to do is we're going to witness the James Younger Gang. Yes, that Jesse James outlaw guys. They were here on July 21st, 1873, outside of Adair, Iowa, to rob their first train. Now, this train was a Chicago, Rock Island, and Pacific Railroad train. But why talk about this event on a football podcast, no less? Well, who knows? Maybe one of the people that we talk about in this very episode was on that train because we're talking about a school that was formed in the same year on the outskirts of Chicago, a school that this week's guest recently released an article about on the website entitled Best High School Football Team That No One Ever Heard About. <laughs> we asked that question because why would we bring a guy on a show about NFL history to talk about a high school that nobody heard of in Chicago? Well, simple. Because not only is it a great story, it's a great football story that you cannot hear anywhere else. But to tie it all in with the Football History Do podcast, there are connections to the NFL too, and we'll get to that. But really for me, it's so cool because not only is Joe the friend of mine and a mentor for the Sports History Network, he's also a true football history enthusiast and researcher to the core. I mean, (laughs) you have to have an appreciation for this type of story. Sure, it's about football. But it's so much more. I mean, this school that we're going to talk about is originally formed in 1873, and it had different names over throughout the years. But for this episode, we're going to refer it to as Morgan Park Military Academy. And Joe Ziamba is probably the preeminent resource for this school as far as a football story goes. And speaking of that, this is a good time to let you know why. Joe wrote the book. He wrote the book on this story, which is called Cannons, Cadets and Legends, the football history of Morgan Park Military Academy. And I do suggest that you pick up the book. But if you're listening to this episode before December 11th, then you need to hurry up and get over to the website because Joe is giving away an autographed copy of this book just in time to be a Christmas gift. Whether that's for a sports enthusiast, maybe you have a loved one, maybe for yourself. To enter the contest, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash contest. Even if it's past December 11th, hey, you should probably still go over there because we're always giving away books and other things and such over on the website. Also, while you're over there, on the website, that is, sportshistorynetwork.com, you can learn more about the school, 
Joe's podcast, which is When Football Was Football, and his books, and so much more. But for now, let's get into the interview with that guy that we just can't keep away from the show, Joe Ziemba. Uh, what's it called? How does it feel to be the most uh, wanted guest of the Football History Do podcast? <laughs> <laughs> excellent, excellent. I thought you were going to yeah. ask me, how's it feel to lose six in a row? <laughs> oh, no. I'm, as a Lions fan, we already we don't talk too much about losing, losing football <laughs> games anymore around here. But yeah, no, you've been on the show more than... Uh, anybody else? Oh, good. Uh, Thank you. Geez, I want to say three interviews now. Plus, yeah. then we had four, two or three episodes with uh, the NFL original teams. So. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, and fun. Josie Emba, Chicago football history extraordinaire. As we were talking about it, it kind of got me thinking. Uh, we we normally talk about Chicago history, Chicago football history, NFL. What got you to the point where you wanted to write a book about? Morgan Park Military Academy, and what even is that? Well, Morgan Park Military Academy uh, exists today as Morgan Park Academy, actually. It's a little school on the south side of Chicago. But my interest started because I grew up on that campus. My dad was the football coach and the athletic director for many years. And so I was forced as a young man, really young guy, to uh, spend a lot of my late summers Relacing football shoes or cleats, as they were called, uh, cleaning off the old helmets, some with face masks, most with not, cleaning the spider webs out of the concession stand at the school uh, stadium, which really wasn't a stadium, was some rickety wooden bleachers. But uh, having that in my mind, I hated football because I was forced to be part of a football team for some, from a very young age. And not that I disliked it, but I had no interest in playing or getting yelled at by the coach who yelled at them as much as he did yell at me. Uh, and then sit around and watch these guys suffer in the hot sun. I thought, there's got to be a better way of, of playing a sport, and especially when they got cold out. So I played basketball. And my dad was okay with that. I tried football a couple times, uh, managed to not get hurt. But the real reason for doing this book was in uh, maybe almost 20 years ago, some of my dad's teams from the 40s and the 50s had a reunion. And I was invited to uh, be a speaker at the reunion, mostly because my book on the Cardinals, Chicago Cardinals, had just come out. And the school had heard about it and did a nice review of the book and then asked me if I'd stop by the reunion, which was a great time because you knew guys when you're about two feet high and here's these monsters. And now I'm kind of looking down at them uh, because the monsters aren't so big anymore when you when you grow up uh, to be an adult. But they had such great stories to tell, not only about the football program and playing, but also about my dad and how they respected him but feared him. He was about 6'4 or 6'5 and maybe about 240. He was drafted by the Chicago Cardinals. And... Uh, then when he got hurt with the Cardinals, got into coaching. He could make more money than you could playing professional football back in the 40s. So these stories came out. One, uh, I still remember about him being a bowler, that he would take the football team bowling. And he was such a big, strong guy, he would fire this bowling ball down like it was a golf ball and shatter the uh, pins. Back then, they had manual pin setting. And so it was rumored that one of the pin setters got smashed by some of these flying bowling pins. And whenever they saw this big guy come in with his football team, they didn't want to be a pin setter anymore. So those are the kind of stories that got me going, uh, learning more about how a military academy existed. And then I found out 
how extraordinarily good they were that year after year that this was really a remarkable team, especially since their enrollment was somewhere in anywhere between 150 to 300, and they would typically take on big schools in Chicago that had three or four times the size of enrollment and and, and beat them. So uh, my interest started really with that reunion. I wrote an article afterwards uh, documenting some of the history of my dad's teams. And then it sat for many years and kind of percolated in my mind. And uh, a few years ago, I got the idea, eh, maybe I'll try this and see what's there. So that's how it happened. Yeah, and that's cadets, canons, and legends. And going back, I mean, let's talk a little bit about the history of the, the school and, and the academy. Where, when was it founded? Yeah, it's a wonderful history, too. It was founded back in 1873, and back then, Morgan Park was a suburb of Chicago. And it's uh, kind of an interesting, I'm going to say a geological or geographical area because Chicago, as well as Illinois, is very flat. And Morgan Park has what you might almost call it, might have been in the old days, a, a hill or a cliff. And that was left over from the Ice Ages. So the academy sat atop of this hill and uh, was also used by training by some of the coaches back then. But in 1873, it was founded uh, by the 1870, let's see, I think 1877, it became Morgan Park Military Academy. The first name, in fact, was the Mount Vernon English Classical and Military School. And then it became the Morgan Park Military Academy in 1877. Around 1892, it became part of the university of the new University of Chicago called the Morgan Park Academy of the University of Chicago. And uh, that's when kind of the football programs from both the University of Chicago and the, the uh, Morgan Park Academy aligned under Amos Alonzo Stagg. There were co-eds for a while at the school. That later ended. In uh, 1907, the University of Chicago decided that the academy would no longer be affiliated with the university. So the academy was on its own and almost closed. It was one of uh, two or three times in those early years that the school just found a way to hold on, which they did through fundraising and alumni involvement. Until in 1918, it became Morgan Park Military Academy. And uh, by then, it was an all-boys school, an all-male school. There was boarding on campus. And uh, it stayed that way through 1959 when the school dropped the military connotation and went co-ed shortly thereafter and is still in existence today. Was uh, 1918 changing over to military academy, was that because of World War I? It probably was, I think. Uh, there was maybe a need to have that type of affiliation. It might have been government funding involved. I'm not quite sure, but it seemed at the time from the research I've done that uh, this seemed to be a, an affiliation with the military. You mentioned 1892. That's an important uh, year for professional football too, with Pudge Heffelfinger That's and everything. Right. <laughs> our first paid professional player. <laughs> and then Alonzo Stagg. I mean, that's a big name that we've talked about through some of our uh, podcasts pre before. I mean, what was his contributions to the team? Well, Stagg was, uh, his title was, I believe, director of athletics for the academy. And he held a similar title for the university. He, he was listed as the coach of the academy on four separate years in their documents that are in their archives. 
And he would hold joint practices with the teams at times. Uh, he also used the academy as sort of a farm farm feeder team where he would uh, stow away a player for a year or so. And this is, uh, I think, always been ironic because Stag came out, especially in 1922, as being very anti-professional. And I'm not saying he was unprofessional, but he was able to uh, use the academy uh take his pick of the players. He would coach them at times. And as I mentioned, he was listed as one of the co-coaches for four different seasons. Uh, keep an eye on them. And uh, we, we've heard comments and in the newspapers about Coach Stagg did this or that for the academy. He uh, had his scrub team, as they were called, his second team or his freshmen play the academy almost every year. And even one year, the uh, University of Chicago played Morgan Park Military Academy in football. So there was a real close tie until, as I said, they two schools broke their affiliation in 1907. I'm thinking about that nowadays, just a university playing against a high school team. And speaking of that, the, the name of the article that just released on Monday, the best high school football team no one ever heard about. Why did you go with that? What did, why'd you go with that title of the article? I think when I when I mentioned this book and people say, what's it about? And I say, Morgan Park Military Academy. And they'll, they'll look at me strangely like, whoa, where'd you come up with that? And uh, But yeah, you're right. In a time when um, colleges, Englewood High School in Chicago played Notre Dame. And I think they tied them, and it was considered an upset that Notre Dame stayed with Englewood around the turn of the century. But, uh, yeah, with the school uh, having that great, great football history, and I was looking to, to do some more about it and then find out that some of the teams that's played it regularly did play um, different colleges in the Midwest, as did a lot of the other high schools, Illinois and Northwestern and Chicago, to the big schools at the time, all played high schools. Till finally, I think at, at the University of Chicago, the students there uh, demanded that Stagg stop playing high school teams, which which he did eventually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you mentioned that like they they see the book and they're what is this book? I when I see the cover, I'm looking at it right now with okay, we have the football cleats and the jersey, and then you have the the cannon with the team photo. So it's a totally unique type of school. And initially, I thought cadets, cannons, and legends. Okay, we're going to talk about. Uh, history of you know some kind of military school, but then we talked about football. I mean, going into that, who was maybe the? Why do you think the football program? I mean, how did it go? What were some of the early memories, stories of the program? Yeah, going back that far, and one of my problems, and I probably consider myself a, a researcher as well as a writer, is to go through everything and figure out what games were played and why they were important. And I really lucked out when I started doing the research. I, I started out um, just looking through newspapers as much as I could online. But for something like this, you've got to go and find the original sources. And I was just absolutely stunned when I got in touch with Morgan Park Academy, uh, four or five years ago, and asked if there might be any information on the football program there. Not only did I have information, but there was a treasure chest. The Academy has done such an excellent job of, of keeping its records and filing them and maintaining them. Uh, there's a gentleman named Barry Kritzberg who worked at the Academy uh, 20 years or so ago, and he's the one I had contact with with the reunions. And I think he did a great deal in saving the documents and the paperwork that were probably destined for the, the dustbin. 
But now we have a couple archives, uh, archivists uh, named uh, Marsha Thomas and Sharon Eichenberger. I mis- always misspelled that, Sharon, I apologize, who are uh, donating their time and were very helpful and have become friends. Uh, they got into the project, which is really all you can ask. And then David Honor, who was uh, working with the Academy and was a graduate, he actually did the cover of my book. Uh, he was there as well. And the three of them just treated me royally and uh, helped me out with everything I wanted. So I started with the archives there, and then I branched out to find different stories. Uh, went to the University of Notre Dame for their archives because one of the graduates is Jess Harper, who was a football coach there at Notre Dame at the turn of the last century. Went down to the University of Illinois, uh, looking up some other information on uh, a player named Shorty Burdick, who I'm sure we'll talk about tonight. And uh, then the Chicago History Museum has by far the best collection of newspapers in the city, uh, papers that are not available online or on your computer. And so with that, I was able to uh, go back uh starting out with your books that are still in existence at the Academy, define what games were played, and then match up the scores. And that was kind of a challenge because I think when you find a score, I want to verify it at least one more time, either through a newspaper article or some other document. In fact, one of the uh, funny things we found in the archives, Marsha Thomas found it, was a binder where the coaches would write in their opponents and their scores of the games and that was such a breakthrough till I got it uh, looking at it and I noticed the scores weren't matching up. And we kindly, finally figured out that maybe the coaches back in 1903 would be forced to write the scores in, but they might do it a year later. Maybe they forgot. Maybe they didn't have the record keeping in that we have. So it was fun to have that and look at it. And uh, I found, say, scores my dad wrote in in the, in the 40s and 50s. And so to see his handwriting was, was quite a thrill. So I was very fortunate to have uh, the run of the archive, so to speak, and treated the documents with respect like they do. And it's just a, a wonderful, wonderful tribute to the folks who work in the archives at Morgan Park Academy today that they've done such a great job of keeping the records so that knuckleheads like myself can go in there and cause all sorts of trouble, but find out what we need. Yeah. Speaking of knuckleheads like yourself and being a kid growing up in the school, you said that with, uh, with your father being there as coach, I mean, what, were the, what was that like when you were writing the book and you were reliving maybe the memories and the moments from being on the field with your father? Yeah, that was very special because I mentioned because he was the coach, I didn't really like football. Um, but, but then when you go into this and then I was able to track down his players and interview them and get their comments and there was 100% respect for him as a teacher and a coach. And times were different then. A lot of educators today will probably uh, hear what I'm saying now and want to slap me across my head with a yardstick. But um, things were different. Being a military school and, of course, the discipline, you could use a different type of discipline on the students than you can today. And no one ever complained about it. But 70 years ago, I guess it was okay if uh, someone misbehaved in your class, especially if he's a football player, to hold him by his ankles outside the window of a second floor building until he promised never, never, ever again to misbehave in class. There was uh, another story. One of the 
players told me about how my dad was a big guy, as I mentioned, had a, a great arm for pitching, uh, throwing erasers. A lot of people may not have heard of what an eraser and a chalkboard is, but he would catch a student dozing in the hot classroom back then and wing an eraser off the guy's forehead to make sure he woke up. And they also had something called the Book of Knowledge, which I think if you took a big dictionary, those who have seen a big dictionary today and kind of spread it apart on top of a guy's head and uh, put it there and then slam it together to make sure that he absorbed all the knowledge in that book. So again, this sounds catastrophic today, and I apologize to anyone who went through these things, which were called treatments, but the players loved them and they still talk about them, how much they enjoyed the attention. In fact, one guy said, if I didn't get that kind of attention, I thought I did something wrong. Yeah, it's kind of like you mentioned back then that was considered more normal. I wonder what 60, 50, 70 years from now, because everything is digitized, everything is react upon, and everything is told through multiple mediums nowadays. It's There's not that allure like when you were going through all these archives, the newspapers and things to try to, like you said, fact check between two. Now you've got 50 different websites reporting on the same score. What kind of nuggets are there going to be 50 years from now that people go, A, wow, those people are crazy for what they did 50 years ago. And then B, like what's really going to be undiscovered compared to what it was 50 years before then? I fear, I fear that we're going to lose the art of research, so to speak. It'll probably always be there. I know there's newspapers at the Chicago History Museum that will likely never, ever uh, be on micro or excuse me they're on microfilm but they'll probably never be on the computer because they're just so special they're neighborhood papers and and it's always been a nice resource for me to to check that out but i do fear that we're going to lose that art of research in fact now i feel guilty when i can go on my computer and verify something so quickly when before I'd have to get up and make it a reservation to go to a certain museum and look at certain newspapers or certain collections to find things. But I do hope that someday stuff is going to show up unexpectedly. A good example might be at the Pro Football Hall of Fame in Canton, Ohio, which a few years ago was given the collection of Edward Dutch Sternemann. He was the partner of George Hallis and the Chicago Bears for that first decade from 1920-19, early 1932 or something. And uh, his family kept all his records, which includes financial information, which I'm using in my next book about the Bears and the Cardinals. And it's just, you always hope that something's going to be out there. In fact, now I'm, I'm still searching for a couple of things I wish I could find about the Cardinals when they were in Chicago, but the Cardinals had a warehouse fire years ago, as did the Bears. And so a lot of that paper stuff is, is no longer available, never will be. But somewhere, someplace, I always hope that somebody will say, hey, my great-great-grandfather has this box of stuff. Would you like to see it? And that did happen to me last year. There's a gentleman in the south suburbs of Chicago whose uncle was um, – one of the managers of the Cardinals back in 1918 and got some personal papers he let me look at, which will be in the next book I'm working on. But that was just oh, so incredible to see that. So I hope, I hope someday, 50 years from now, someone will say, boy, how did they find this stuff? I mean, without a computer, but what's still out there? And it may pop up someday. I hope I'm there when it's around. Eh, 50 years, maybe not, but we can always hope. Uh, we'll invent the magic pill for you yeah. to stick around that for 50 <laughs> years. Or you ever find yourself when you're being that you're a researcher and a lot of your 
work happens to be around the south side of Chicago, going to estate sales or anything like that and trying to dig through boxes to find a nugget that someone else thinks is just trash? Yeah, at, at first I did. This is years ago and I was doing the Cardinals thing because I thought I might be able to find something. But uh, once in a while you find an old football card, say from the 40s, but I haven't done that. What I've done instead is concentrate on, on finding newspapers where they might be at different libraries. University of Illinois is another location which has a ton of newspapers because it's not always the big ones like the Chicago Tribune. It'd be the the small ones like the Englewood Times, for example, or the um, Munster, Indiana Times that would have the articles on their local team. And that's one of the nice things about researching the NFL's early years because teams from, say, Rock Island or Muncie, uh, Detroit, not that Detroit's a small town, but places you don't normally expect to, to find some of the information, they'll still have the newspapers in their libraries. How do they have the newspapers archived? Are they like so paper with like under glass or something? Or how do I keep them preserved? Yeah, pretty much everything's on microfilm if it's in a library. There was a small uh, library in, uh, in near Morgan Park called the Ridge Historical Society, which still has the actual paper documents. And they were very helpful, too, in my research because they have the actual physical papers. Most of the time, they'll require you wear gloves because these things are really getting fragile. And uh, But being able to look at those, because it was a neighborhood paper from Oregon Park, which I had not even heard of before, and found out they had them. So I was just quite anxious to get over there and be as careful as possible. And normally they'll assign someone with you uh, to turn the pages, make sure you don't uh, rip it off completely. And then I understand that, and I'm grateful that they're doing what they can to preserve this type of history. Yeah, it's amazing to think of how long certain things can last especially even going back to the cave paintings i mean that's a way a ways ago but that's what i'm thinking <clears throat> that's what i'm talking about there's that wonderment that allure of what were these people in these caves really thinking with their photos it could have been nothing what we do we see maybe a i don't know a mammoth and a person with a spear we think is one thing but it's totally another where in the future with the digital age and you like your podcast you have a great show you are rehashing what happened with Chicago history football, which yourself, of course, you're reporting on things before the digital age, but stuff that's happening today, 2020, like what's, it's going to be so different. I think when it's reporting, I hope that somehow we can still capture that. Uh, what's the word? I, I used it, that wonderment of the Indiana Jones running through the temple and looking for that scroll or whatever else he was looking for, chasing that big ball behind him. And that's something that's so neat for you to be able to do for a local high school, for something that most people, they, yeah, I went to this school or I know a little bit about the history, but not 1873 or 18, oh, <laughs> yeah. way back then. And you mentioned something that, you know, kind of stuck with there. You said your father, you know, being the coach and he, you said he was a player in the NFL Cardinals. Right. Yes. Did so okay, there's a link, there's a connection to the NFL. Are there any other connections from Morgan Park to the NFL by chance? There are. There's there's a, a couple which are quite interesting. Only one player actually made the NFL that, that I know of and I dug into this pretty deeply. It was a guy named Lloyd Burdick, whose nickname was Shorty and he graduated in nineteen twenty five, but uh quite a remarkable player. He played on an undefeated team at Morgan Park Military Academy, went down to the University of Illinois. They won the national championship with him in the lineup. 
And then he uh, ended up with the Chicago Bears in 1932 when they won the NFL championship. So he was kind of a winner at every single level. But uh, his story is quite remarkable in that uh, not only was he a great football player, but he was a wrestler in college. I think he took second in what would be considered the NCAA wrestling championships. He became a pro wrestler for a little bit. He has also tried boxing. He was an actor. Uh, he, he did everything at the academy. I was able to find out, and his papers are down at the University of Illinois Library, that he was in the band while he was at the academy, and this monstrous man playing the trombone or whatever he played, but uh, kind of cool pictures of him and and uh, what he did to make his high school life enjoyable. But he was the one player I found out that uh, made it to the NFL and after his Bears career, he actually got signed by Cincinnati, I believe, for a season as well. Then another another link was the um, Chicago Cardinals, ironically, made their training camp at the academy in 1938, 1940, and I think a couple of other years. But it was a, a unique situation in 1938. We were still kind of locked in the Depression. The academy had a very able leadership at the time who were looking to figure out ways of making money uh, without really laying off their faculty. Uh, they did things like offer on-campus housing for the faculty. In fact, one football coach they had, uh, he was only paid $25 a month in 1933, but he got free housing, free room and board for him and his family. But they also opened up the, a summer school with co-eds. Ooh, that was a big change for them. Brought uh, some income in there. And then uh, I'm not sure how they got in contact, but the Cardinals were offered to come in, bring their whole team in. And they came in, I think, <clears throat> excuse me, August 18th through September 11th of 1938. And for $2.50 per man per day, they got their housing, all their meals, and the use of the fields, as well as the equipment. So it was a, a pretty nice deal for the Cardinals, but also put about $3,000 into the kitty for the Academy back in 1938 when they really could use it. Uh, another link is um, one of the coaches, Claude Grisby uh, from the 30s. He also became an NFL referee from 1947 through 1951. So, but those, those are some of the links to the NFL. And I also found out that players from the Bears and the Cardinals always, normally I'd say often when I'm talking, but they always came to the academy to be speakers at the football banquet. And players like Marshall Goldberg and Charlie Trippy were there. Um, so they had uh, the best of the pros coming to talk to the players and give them some input about what a career in football might be like. Of course, then they probably thinking, oh, I got to work a full-time job while I play pro football. Maybe that's not what I want to do. But uh, those are some of the links to the NFL the school had. And ironically, sometimes the, the Cardinals in the past have been looked upon as being frugal. And sure enough, the uh, in the archives, the academy, some of the minutes from the board meeting said uh, they had one of the guys that was assigned to contact uh, the owner of the Cardinals because they hadn't paid their bill yet by November. <laughs> That's just funny. Again, going back to an NFL team playing at a high school, staying at a high school for the uh, the training camp. Nothing like it is today. And you mentioned Chicago Cardinals, of course. So that's the South Side we determined before, and against the Bears and the North Side. 
so there the the park's on a, a a ridge you said in a flat land like how close would that be now compared to say downtown chicago the school oh good question that's on 111th street so with the chicago's unique grid system uh 111 blocks to the north then and uh a few blocks a couple miles to the to the west of uh what downtown would be so the so if uh, you're sitting if you're sitting at the say you're having lunch out there and 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 at the recess area, would you be able to see the city skyline then? Yeah, at times you can, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Kind of rare with the uh, smog, et cetera. We don't have smog anymore. It's perfect. But uh, yeah, it, it, you can see some of, from a distance, you can see some of the buildings. Yeah. Okay. So we're talking a decent ways. We're talking that downtown. We're talking suburbs and such. But I, I wonder, so if you're up on the building, uh, what do they even call it now? Sears Tower, Willis Tower still? Right, or? Willis Tower, yeah. I went up there and you could, you could like go over and you could, you could, it, was, it wasn't the very top floor, but there's like the glass pane that oh, right, sticks yeah. out and you can stand over, man, that'll get you shaking in your jibbies real quick. Man, that was, <laughs> I won't do that. A, <laughs> no, I didn't stand, but I, I got out there. A little, maybe I did stand. I, I want to say that I got out there a little bit and I looked down, but I can't remember if I actually stood there, but cause it was like, even though it's a building, you're just kind of shaking. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, speaking of shaking and, you know, kind of tied in back to military, uh, you said that okay, so thirty-eight in in that kind of time frame. What did World War II do to the academy? Yeah, it was tough on the academy overall. I think forty-two people lost their lives in the military. Uh, the academy and over eight hundred. I think it was eight hundred seventy-five served. So uh, that would be uh, alumni, would be staff, would be students who were able to graduate early. They kind of changed the requirements for graduation that year in 19, early 1942 so that they could enlist. So it was a, a huge impact on the student body, et cetera. And uh, great stories because the academy kept up with, with their uh, alumni and staff uh, that was overseas, including prisoners of war and organizing uh, different different acts of I, I shouldn't say charity, but recognizing the uh, the soldiers that were out there and the folks in the navy, etc. So, eight hundred seventy five is quite a lot of number for a small school like that. And uh, there was a nice memorial on campus uh, that was built, and it looked like the columns at Mount Vernon where George Washington lived. So they they put some thought behind that to where they honored those who served and who were lost during World War II. One of the, the neatest things I found was a, a letter that one of the students at the time wrote about his impact of, of Pearl Harbor and World War II starting and how it would affect him. And just knowing then when you're 17 years old, what lies ahead in the next year and how things are going to change. So being from a military school, they normally got some preference when it came to um, being considered for officers, et cetera, when they served and they were usually pretty well trained in the use of small arms and how to uh, survive in the field as well. So that training certainly would have helped any any of the graduates from the academy when they were enlisted into the World War II effort. Did that training correlate at, at the beginning to their success with football? I think it did. And the reason I mentioned that is I, I still remember one of the folks I interviewed who said that his football discipline was combined with his classroom discipline and that on the weekend he had to run with his full military backpack in uniform with the hard shoes for I don't know how long, but he uh, 
had a, had a run consistently with that. And normally they would put extra books, meaning stones or rocks in your knapsack that you were carrying, uh, that he would have to, to run with that. But, uh, yeah, they, like I said, the, the punishment at the school and, Usually there weren't any real problems because of the small acts of punishment in the classroom. I think my dad used to call them reminders instead of punishments. And uh, so that they were were in pretty good shape. And so on the football field, uh, I think they were pretty careful. They made sure the players got water, uh, plenty of rest, and that they had practices early in the morning. So I think that came again from my dad's playing background, knowing as a player what you're going through in the heat and how water is necessary. And that's back when a time when coaches would withhold water. You hear stories about that as well to make you tougher. And uh, so they normally took pretty good care of their players that way. And, of course, the players got to eat well. There were training tables, et cetera, and gave them a little advantage that way over the other students as well. Who did your dad play for when he was with the Cardinals? He he played in 19, would have been 1940. Jimmy Councilman was the coach. Uh, but my dad, as I mentioned, re-injured his knee in training camp at Morgan Park Military Academy. They sent him over to a nearby hospital on 95th Street called Little Company of Mary Hospital. And they were told he would have needed surgery. And at that time, surgery was not as easy as it is today for minor knee injuries like an arthroscope, uh, where you'd be up and about fairly quickly. And he, at that time, made the decision that he could make more money coaching high school football than he could playing professional football. But one of the reasons I got involved in this book was I wanted to find out what happened to him. I have a a kind of a yearbook, an NFL yearbook, where he's listed as one of the members of the Cardinals. So I think he made the team – I know he has a contract. He might have talked about this in one of our previous discussions where his pay was $110 a game, but he had to provide his own shoes and shoulder pads. That was the NFL back in the 1940s. So um, I wanted to find out more about him and what really happened. And when the Cardinals had their 50th reunion of their champion 1947 championship, this is before I wrote the book, but I was starting to interview players like uh, Billy Duell, who was a star end. And he specifically remembered my dad, which I was shocked. He could describe him and what was there. And he said, hey, he hurt his knee, went to the hospital. We really could have used him. And that, to me, made all the research worthwhile. I found out, yes, he would have made the team, likely. And uh, he would have been on there and earned that $110 a game. And But more importantly, that one of his former teammates did remember him. So that meant the world to me. Yeah, so many years later, and it's crazy, like you said, to think about I can make more money as a high school football yeah, coach for yeah. nowadays that's not even close as far as the NFL. But with your father's previous teammate remembering him and so we could have really used him. If you were to produce, we'll say, a movie of your father's career, maybe from his playing days into his coaching days, who would you cast to be your father? Ooh, let's see. Who would be um Good question. It would not be Boris Karloff. That looks like me. So, uh, in his full Frankenstein. Maybe someone like that guy. I'm trying to think. Of it. I'm going to have to look that name up now because I, I'm picturing somebody from. Is this from a more recent movie? Like he's been like from the 80s, 90s movies? No, uh, Boris Karloff's uh, was Franken, the original Frankenstein in the early 30s. So, oh, okay. Uh, now, when I see you, I think of um, the guy. Um, he, I, I can't remember. I don't know his name. He's in. Uh, the 
uh, the Men in Black, not Men in Black, uh, the Bad Boys movies, and he's the one that's the uh, the gangster guy. Oh, jeez. Oh. I'm trying to. I'm going to pull it up right now yeah. and see what else he's in. <laughs> but I think maybe uh, someone like uh, another old star you may not have heard of called Gary Cooper, who was um, played the role in High Noon as the sheriff. Uh, I think it was High Noon. But anyway, uh, he was kind of more the tall and silent type. Uh, I remember my dad being very quiet. And then I hear this different side of his personality from his former players that now he was uh, a real screamer. Not a real screamer, but uh, tough on the, on the guys. But but gentle as well as I would picture someone like Gary Cooper being. In fact, one of the advantages of being a military school was that you could raise money. And they had a very active father's club, uh, which would send the, the team to a preseason training camp in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. That's a pretty nice place. I don't know if you've ever been there. And the team would uh, get rooms in a hotel, and they would rent practice facilities, and they would have their preseason training there for a week or two. So that was kind of an advantage. But also, even before that, the academy op- op- uh, excuse me owned a site in uh, Traverse, Traverse City, Michigan called Cranston. Oh, yeah, okay. And what they would do, they would have a camp in the summer, and it was open to any student of the school who wanted to go. but football players were specifically encouraged to attend. And so that would be their preseason training for most of the summer to get these guys in shape. So when they hit the uh, first game, say, in, and back then it started a little later, say in mid to late September, they were ready to go. Whereas other schools might still be, since we didn't do year-round conditioning back in 1925, might not be in quite the good a shape as the academy was. So that was that was certainly an advantage. Yeah, I mean, like you said, the training, and nowadays it's, okay, maybe the military schools don't have as much of an advantage because the specialized, and they're bringing in, I don't know, I don't think Michigan's doing that good right now. I don't really follow college, but they don't they bring in players specifically and recruit, and uh, there's those big games, like you said, they're ready for them. But what were some of the, the bigger games for the school? Yeah, there were several over the years that I found out. Um, I think one of the biggest was in 1939. Uh, let me go back a little further. There was 1910. You may have heard of a coach called Bob Zupke, Robert Zupke, coach at Illinois. And he started his coaching in Illinois at Oak Park High School in the western suburbs. And Sports Illustrated, I think, did an article about him uh, many years ago. But it said that in three years, he only lost one game, but they didn't identify the school. And that school was Morgan Park Military Academy. And the academy defeated Oak Park in 1910, uh, 9-6. to And so that was uh, kind of a neat game, at least from a historical aspect. I love to find those things. You know, we talked a little bit about before about changing from digital to the paper documentation. And you always hope that you'll find something that's not on on the computer where everyone else has access to it. You still have to work for it. But if you can find one of those gems, like when I found out uh, when the Chicago Cardinals actually played their first game, it was like I discovered the Titanic. I know how that guy felt then. But anyway, back to your question. <laughs> In 1925, we talked about Shorty Burdick before. He was 6'5", 230-pound lineman. And the academy is so well-known that they played some of their games at Cubs Park, which is now Wrigley Field. And they had a game against Chicago Latin in 1925 that they won 48 to nothing. In the second half, the coach decided to line Burdick up at halfback instead of on the line. 
And he only ran three times, but he gained 175 yards and scored three touchdowns. Then he kicked an extra point in the 48 to nothing win. So before we had William the Refrigerator Perry running from the backfield in Chicago for the Chicago Bears in 85, we had Shorty Burdick doing that at Wrigley Field, which would later become, which was the home of the Bears at the time. So that was 25. And then 1939 was what I still consider the, the biggest game of all time. The, uh, Culver Military Academy from Culver, Indiana, big rival of Morgan Park Military Academy. They played in 1939 in front of about 5,000 people, but it had so much drama to it because these were the two biggest schools in the Midwest, from one from Indiana, one from Illinois. A full train of uh, followers came from Indiana for the game, and I talked about that plateau or hill coming up in front of the campus on 111, so the marching band from Culver and all their fans marched up that hill. And then uh, about a block later was where the football field was. It's now townhomes and condominiums, but they marched up for that game and the place was just mobbed and got coverage from all the major newspapers around the Midwest that knew that this game was going on. It was almost like it was a college game. So uh, the Academy, uh, Morgan Park Military Academy defeated Culver 19 to zero back in 1939. So that was a big one. And then I think the the other big one was in 1949 when the Academy defeated Blue Island Community High School 7-6. to six. And Blue Island was then part of the South Suburban Conference, one of the eight biggest suburban schools. The Academy uh, would, would try and play as many of them as they could, but I know a lot of the players talked about that game as proving that they could play with anybody when they could beat a Blue Island team that way. And I know it was one of my father's uh, proudest moments when they were able to knock off the very big and brave and dangerous Blue Island High School team back in 1949. So those were uh, those were some of the biggest games in the history of the school. I believe there was others that played. For example, 1907, they had a undefeated team with which are now called the Coachless Wonders. At the start of the school playing, there were there weren't coaches. Football teams just didn't have coaches, but later they did. And then for some reason in 1907, uh, the academy no longer had a football coach, so these kids uh, played on their own and went undefeated. So some of their games are quite intriguing, and some of the strategy because they had to not only coach themselves, but also arrange for games. Uh, managed transportation, which is very primitive at the time, of course. And uh, so uh, that was that was one of the, uh, the the neatest seasons, I think, in the in the history of the school. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of when I had Leo Lyons' grandson on the show and we talked ah. about his role with the team. I mean, if there was a hat that could be flipped about a million ways, that's what it was. But, I mean, that was George Alice, too, coming from your neck of the woods and every – player, coach, manager, everything, and, I don't know, even painting the lines on the field and setting up the <laughs> the stands and such. True, yes. I mean, that's something that we today can't relate to just because, I mean, even going to your local, I don't know, to play some pick-em-up basketball or something, everything's already set up for you. You just got to bring the ball or it's even there for you. I mean, speaking of that, so there's a wealth of history there. Eight, we're talking 1873 all the way through when did the school football program start shut down? Uh, 1978. Yep. So a little over 100 years worth of football. Yeah. Oh, no, I'm sorry. You said it started in 1992, the football program, right? Uh, they started, yeah, 1893, a uh, year after okay. Stag started his program, yeah. 
So we're talking quite a few years. I mean, after all your uh, research and such there, I mean, what's something that, I don't know, just kind of stuck out to you? Like, wow, that just kind of made me blow my socks off and I got to reread that one again. (laughs) Yeah, it was, I think one of the big things was some of the personalities that came through. But looking at it now, when I look at some of the teams many years later that they defeated, which are the big powerhouses in Illinois, Joliet Catholic, Lincoln Way, uh, Loyola Academy, Lockport. These are all good football schools that the academy defeated. And there was a a difficulty for the academy in scheduling games because a lot of these bigger schools didn't want to get beat by a a tiny little military school there on the south side of Chicago. And, And so I think that's one thing that really stuck with me is that they were able to be consistent winners. Um, do some different things. For example, they even were the first Illinois team to play an out-of-state game. And that was 1901. They played the in Cleveland, the University School of Cleveland. Uh, so that was uh, uh, kind of remarkable as well. So they were trendsetters, played in different conferences when they could. They were invited to play in that South Suburban Conference I mentioned that included Blue Island and Thornton and Argo and big schools like that way back when. So. Uh, the fact that this tiny school that could uh, would try and schedule as many of the big schools as they could to play. Almost kind of like a parallel to Carlisle Indian School when yeah, Jim Thorpe right. and everything, they yeah. kind of had that same, I don't want to say bravado, what's the right, they, they had, they were innovative and they were this little guy taking on the big guy and they somehow found a way to win a lot. And not to say that, you know, anybody was Jim Thorpe because Jim Thorpe, the, great, the world's greatest athlete, but still. Speaking of Jim Thorpe, let's go back to Morgan Park Military Academy. I'm going to give you the virtual keys to my DeLorean. You know what's coming. You can go back in any point in Morgan Park history. What moment are you going to go to and relive? Ooh, that would be a good one. Let's see. There's so much that happened. I'd like to go back to 1910, and Amos Alonzo Stagg was supposed to be one of the coaches. And I'd like to see what his involvement would be. No, I'm going to go back further. 1903 when Stagg was there, because by that, even though the school's uh, university and the academy are no longer affiliated, Stagg still helped out with the program. But probably like to go back there, uh, see what it was like to run a football practice, see what a game was like. Uh, I tried to reconstruct a game once because the uh, school newspaper told us at one time a play-by-play of one of the games, which was highly unusual at the time and found out that it was a rushing game and that the teams would, if the losing team would immediately punt the ball back, for example, in the game I I charted was with the, I believe, Anargo Military Academy in Illinois. They only ran 15 plays or so uh, compared to the Academy 60 because they kept punting the back and the Academy would rush it. They weren't passing the ball. So it'd be neat to see one of those games, although I think after watching today's games, we'd be a little bored with no passing. Uh, but just to see how they worked and the tackling was different with no face guards, uh, see how they might do. But I'd like to see how, how Stagg ran a practice. He was so innovative in the things he did and the contributions he made to early football. So it would be nice to see how he juggled all these things at once, all his responsibilities at the university, plus his responsibilities at the academy, and and to see how he did. 
Okay, so now you're going to cheat a little bit because you're not supposed to go back and take Gray's Almanac back to Alonzo Stag, <laughs> but let's give him one, I don't know, football strategy or something like that. What would you go back and what strategy would you give him back in 1903 or 1910? Yeah, I, I'm trying to remember some of the things he did. I think he's responsible. He might be for the huddles and uh, for numbers on the back, but um, Stag would, would experiment with different types of offenses at the time. Um, at the first, he didn't really embrace the pass, I don't believe, but he had some uh, some really good players. Hugo Bezdick and Walter Eckersall were some of those that really were stars in the backfield for Stag. So I think his reliance on an innovative rushing attack when everybody else was doing the same thing, and it's difficult to describe it now, but uh, the placement of players, their blocking sequences, and the fact that they didn't go up the middle on every single play. Uh, so I, I would I would think that would be something to be interested in witnessing now. Yeah, like you said, totally different game. And we go back even from, I don't know, not to compare military and football to each other, but the same thing, the tactics change so drastically. And a lot of times it's the technology going back again. They don't, they didn't have... <laughs> Your father had to bring his own shoes and pads to the football game, <laughs> right. for goodness sakes. <laughs> What's that all about of professional ranks? And uh, speaking of your father, let's get back to Morgan Park. And I'd like to give you the floor to share the the book. Um, any, anybody you'd like to thank for the book or any anything open floor? Yeah, thank you very much. Well, I think this book would not have been possible without the folks at the archives. I mentioned Marcia and Sharon and Dave and the administrators uh, at the school as well, uh, Mrs. Shepard and, uh, and Vincent Hermosillo were very gracious in allowing me to uh, pick through everything. But uh, the school is just remarkable. And one of the other things we haven't talked about is that it has four people in the College Football Hall of Fame. And I checked with the College Football Hall of Fame and they didn't specifically verify it, but they thought this tied for the most uh, players in the Hall of Fame from one high school. And so besides Amos Alonzo Stagg, there was Jess Harper, who we talked about earlier, and Jess was the uh, very successful coach at Notre Dame. Uh, Wallace Wade, who coached at Alabama, won three national championships, then at Duke. Uh, the stadium at Duke is named after whom, him. And then Albert Benbrook, which was a two-time All-American from the academy who played at the University of Michigan. So the Hall of Famers are there as well. Uh, when you look at some of those, it's uh, really remarkable. Uh, one of the coaches was Dave Stewart from 1916 through 1918, became a U.S. senator. It'd be kind of nice for kids to look back and say, oh, yeah, that senator, he was my football coach. And you wonder, whoa, that's pretty amazing. So uh, some of those things that we talked about, games at Wrigley Field, out-of-state games, uh, pretty amazing. And some of the coaching staff that that was at the academy was remarkable as well. Uh, Fred Lowenthal became a very successful lawyer. He was a coach back in 1904, 1902, who ultimately was removed by Mr. Stagg because he was not an alumnus of the University of Chicago. In fact, he went to the University of Illinois after he went to the academy and Stagg didn't want any spies in there seeing what he was doing because he'd be around them all the time. Uh, Jess Harper's brother, Floyd, was also a coach, which is, is pretty neat. And then we had a Broadway playwright named Fred Herendine who 
wrote several Broadway plays and turned into movies and was making more money as a freshman at the University of Chicago than most of the teachers were easily in a year. He would make that in a week. Uh, so uh, another guy named Wade Woodworth, who was All-American at Northwestern, was also the U.S. Powerboat champion. Uh, he was the guy I mentioned earlier, worked for $25 a week plus his room and board for his family. So just some neat things. Uh, and the fact that the Academy is still in existence today, all these years later, be 150 years and three years. And uh, remarkable, the academic graduation rate is 100%, uh, still a smaller school. But when you look at the list of where these graduates go, it's the finest universities in the world that they they end up with. And most are really strongly recruited. So even though they don't have football anymore, we, we still love them. <laughs> and uh, it's just great to see that the job that the uh, staff continues to do there to keep the school moving ahead, keeping pace, keeping above, and reusing the buildings, keeping up with technology. Uh, I know the old superintendent's home was turned into a preschool. And now there's uh, they have from preschool all the way through high school. If your student want a child want to spend 12, 13 years there, they could. So again, my admiration of the school continues. It was strong when I lived there a hundred some years ago, but even today with what they're doing and uh, really appreciate their, all their help on my research as well. And if someone were to want to learn more about the Morgan Park football program, where would you suggest that they go besides well, Sports History Network? Yeah, of course. But uh, we do have a book out, as we mentioned, called uh, Cadets, Cannons, and Legends. And that's the history of the Morgan Park football program. One can buy a, a book through the Academy. The Academy keeps 100% of the sales, which is uh, something my wife Carol and I arranged. So we wanted to make sure the Academy had that access and uh, that asset. And also it's available on Amazon. So uh, it's, it's listed there as well. So, uh, so far the reviews have been good for this book. Uh, it is about one school, but it's written in a way that uh, you can pick it up in any chapter and read some stories that might keep it interesting for you. But uh, we were again, honored to be able to bring this history and uncover some things. And uh, hopefully, uh, hopefully that folks will continue to, to look at the history of the Academy. It's just uh a great place and hopefully be around for another 150 years more. Well, there you go. Morgan Park Military Academy. A different type of story for the Football History Dude podcast, but I'll tell you what, I think it all goes together. Again, I want to thank Joe Ziamba for being a longtime supporter of the show, a new friend, a mentor to the Sports History Network, and me, that is, and maybe like Jesse James, the most wanted man on the podcast. As a reminder, uh, if you listen to this before December 11th, you need to hurry, mash that button for the website, that is sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash contest, because you got to go and get your chance to win that book and then autographed copy of Joe's book, which is Cannons, Cadets, and Legends, the Football History of Morgan Park Military Academy. Again, that's at sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash contest. And even if it's past the date, go ahead and head over there anyways, because we always have different kind of contests and giveaways going on. You can also learn more about Morgan Park Academy, Joe's podcast, and even purchase his books over at the website. But for now, dude, I'm through if you're through. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Football History Dude. To make sure you're the first to get the next episode, please subscribe on your podcast player of choice and head on over to thefootballhistorydude.com 
for the show notes and more information on the history of the NFL. And remember, dudes, where we're going, we don't need roads.